This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. everybody. Welcome back to Exvangelical. This week I have with me as my guest, Jamie Fench. She is a writer and a certified, excuse me, certified integrated health coach. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, thank you. Thanks for joining. Um, well, let's go ahead and just get started by learning a little bit about, about you. Where, let's just kind of start at the beginning. Where did, where did you grow up? What's your, what's your background? Let's just kind of get, get familiar with, with where you come from. Cool. Well, where I come from, um, geographically, where I come from is from the Midwest. I was raised in the suburbs outside of St. Louis, um, St. Charles, O'Fallon, that kind of area. Um, definitely everything you could picture about middle-class suburban life. Um, I had a um, pretty... I mean, nothing I don't think was super unique about the way that I was raised in the realm of most people who are probably listening to this as well, um, was raised evangelical Christian, um, specifically Southern Baptist. Um, I remember that being a, a very defining part of who I was and who my family was growing up. Um, I honestly, when I think about it right now, I can't think about any other identity that is more, um, yeah, just more obvious to me when I think about the way I was raised. Um, I Mm. was raised evangelical Christian. Um, and that influenced everything about the way, the way that I made friends or didn't make friends, um, or how I spent my time or how our family together spent our time with one another and with other families and other people. Um, it navigated, you know, even school choices a little bit later in life. I initially started out going to a public elementary school and then I was pulled out and put into a private Christian school for middle school and high school. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was, it was very integrated as much as I kind of don't like using that term because I love that term and it (laughs) lousy thing to give it to is, um, as damaging as evangelicalism was for me, but it was very integrated in every single part of my life, um, as an individual and as a member of my family. Um, and so I think it's, I think it was partially that I was raised in the Midwestern suburbs that I had a very specific upbringing. And then also partially the other half of it being that I was raised evangelical Christian, that I had a very specific upbringing. So, yeah, yeah, that, that all definitely rings very, very true and, and, and familiar. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure for a lot of, for a lot of people uh, listening to that, uh, that integrated that like, (laughs) Uh, holistic, and that's the sort of word that is, right. you know, usually usually used for something else. But it, usually, it, it's a positive term for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, away, but, but it, it works. It gets the point across. Yeah, but. it's it's, uh, it's comprehensive. It's like um, mm-hmm. it's all encompassing. <laughs> it, it definitely, it definitely is. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so your southern, so you went to Southern Baptist churches with your family, and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started, it started out that way. Um, mm-hmm. 
that's the type of uh, denomination that I was raised in initially. And then um, through a series of interesting events, um, I ended up the moment that I could drive, I stopped going to that church and I started going to um, just a non-denominational Christian church that a lot of my school friends went to. And there's some positive things that caused that um, departure and then some also pretty negative things that that reinforced that departure as well, um, which is something that I still think about a lot. And actually in the age of Facebook and the ability to be Facebook friends with your former youth pastor um, causes you... <laughs> super think about those things a lot. So oh my. <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird. It's some weird stuff. We got into an argument about global warming and that was very strange. Um, oh. so <laughs> anyway, off topic. Yeah. <laughs> going to a Southern Baptist church. My, my dad actually was raised Southern Baptist as well. He's originally from Texas. And so that's been his religious expression for his entire life. And so that just happened to be the one that I was born into and raised into, um, cause my mother wasn't raised with any specific religious upbringing. Mm. And then she converted to a form of Christianity. Um, I don't know specifically what denomination, but I think she and my father met in a Baptist church after her first marriage had ended. I think because I think her first marriage ended from the story I'm told, at least I don't know how true or not true it is, but, um, she converted to Christianity and that's why her atheist first husband left her. And I don't know if that's true or not, but, hmm. um, yeah, my parents met at a Baptist church and then they raised myself and my two older siblings from that point, um, as Southern Baptists. So. Gotcha. So what was the, um, just to get another sense of sort of what, what the church was like, what was, um, cause I mean, Southern Baptist churches can, can vary quite a bit. Um, well, in churches in general, not just Southern Baptists, but what was what was your your church environment um, like growing up? What um, did, were you involved in, like the youth group, or did that happen at the other non denominational church? Um, I was about as involved as I could possibly be. Um, I think. Well, I'll say that, but I'll say that that actually came a little bit later. So, a lot of my life, I see or in my younger life, um, my adolescent life, I see delineated. Um, it's, it's kind of in two different half. First half, I honestly don't have a whole lot of memories from, but then from about 12 years old on, it, it drastically shifted. And what caused that drastic shift is the fact that my mother left our family. And I, when I used to have a, um, <clears throat> testimony, um, the way that is that I baptized but until 12 I don't remember thinking about God and again frame of reference for that now because I nature a lot and so it makes the experiencing it all the time so um but the way I used to tell the story is that when my when my mother left and I was 12 and my family you know fell apart and it split is when I really needed God and I, cause I didn't really feel like I had anything else. And so that's when I started to become, that's when I started going to a Christian school and then I started to become super involved in middle school youth group at, 
activities, that's when I, I decided that no matter what I was going to be, every, every decision that I wanted to make or needed to make for my life was going to be navigated solely through the lens of what God wanted for me. And being Southern mm-hmm. Baptist, that was really confusing and hard because you, um, you wanted to do what God, you wanted to make the decisions that would please God. And yet you had such a quote unquote, their language, not mine, but high view of scripture. And so God wasn't speaking anymore. The word of God, the Bible was as much as God ever said. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like I ended up later and we'll get to that, but I ended up later in much more charismatic expressions where, you know, God is still continually speaking and you can hear directly from God. But I vividly remember my adolescence being so, um, I was so anxious and I was so panicked because I was terrified of making the wrong choice because I desperately wanted to believe that I could still hear from God. And yet I was believing required to believe a theology that told me that I wasn't allowed to at all, but then especially as a woman. So I would like scour Uh, scripture and try and try and try and try to find specific answers to my specific problems because I was presented with um, a life path that there was no other option. Like, yeah, you need to make the right choice according to what God wants for you, but there's no way for you to find out what God wants for you apart from just reading the Bible. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to figure out if I'm supposed to move out of state or not with this opportunity that came up and there's no answer in the book of Matthew that tells me, <laughs> Jamie, it, it protect this. Like it's, it's not, yeah. it's not a thing. And so I, um, I was super, scrupulous. I, I felt like I really needed God to be on my team because I didn't feel like anyone else was. And the fact that it just felt like a constantly moving target was extremely stressful. Um, and yeah. then also on top of that, the fact that, my personality as a female never really set me up to succeed inside of Christianity, inside of evangelicalism, um, because I'm not, um, I mentioned this in, in, you know, the other podcast, but I, it's, I, I'm not gentle and I I don't have a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious to God. Apparently. Um, I'm not, I'm very, I'm very intense. I'm very outspoken. I'm very energetic and those types of things. I wasn't really seeing as held up as valuable as a female. Um, those things were fine to be if you were a boy, but as a girl, um, the highest that you could expect to obtain would be to marry a pastor and the types of examples that we were given and what we were told about the types of women that pastors want to marry were not what I was at all. So there was just this constant banging everything the wrong way. And that was actually built upon an already shaky foundation, which, um, this is me now going back to me being baptized at seven. Um, that shaky foundation was the fact that I vividly, one of the few memories I do have from the early, earlier stages of my life is that I vividly remember sitting in my pastor's office at seven years old with my parents. And all I had done was ask a question in my kindergarten Sunday school class about why, why all my friends were getting to swim in our church's tiny pool. And I didn't know what you had to do to be allowed. (laughs) And I think my, um, I mean this in the most Southern way possible, bless their hearts. I think that my Sunday school teachers thought that that was an indication of me desiring to be saved. And so they shuffled me off to the pastor's office, called my parents in. And I remember I, it's not great. It's not super. I have a vivid memory of sitting there. It's a little bit less vivid of what they said to me, but the energetics of this memory are that I was being asked kind of bullet point, bullet point, bullet point 
do I believe the right theological things? Now I'm seven. So it's, it's limited about whether or not I even a know what they're talking about at all. (laughs) And then B whether or not I've actually made a decision for myself about whether or not I believe it. My only visceral feeling that I had in that moment was I don't want to disappoint my parents. Um, I don't want my parents to be mad at me. I don't want to disappoint my pastor, the leadership in my church. And if I, all of my Sunday school class now knows that I'm in this meeting, if I don't walk down the aisle and get to also go for a swim in the church's tiny pool next Sunday, I'm not in the club anymore. I'm an outsider. I'm not an insider. Mm. And I do remember them getting to the question about, and they didn't phrase it this way because I was seven, I think, I don't know, but (laughs) the question about eternal conscious punishment and the idea of hell. And I remember deeply at seven, knowing that that is absolutely not something that I believed in, but all of those feelings of, I need to belong. I need to not disappoint. I need to not make anyone angry at me came up. And I answered yes, when my deep real answer was no. And that answer haunted me for years. I would lay awake in bed at night as a kid and I would call, I'd be crying and call when I parents and to talk to me over and over and over and retell me over and over the story of heaven and hell and God and Jesus and salvation. And I think that my parents probably thought that I was asking them to tell me those stories over and over because I wasn't, you know, in their language and Christian language, like assured of my salvation because the Southern Baptists very much have a once saved, always saved kind of thing. Um, and so, so there were like some form of, of honey, it's okay. You don't have to be worried about that other bad place. You don't have to be worried about hell because you're not going there. When the reality for me, um, and I just figured out the language for this maybe only a few months ago, to be honest, as I've been going through and, and doing some work on myself with all of this. Um, I wasn't afraid of hell. I was never afraid of hell. I was afraid of heaven. Um, because the person that came up with the idea of hell lived there and I didn't want to be anywhere near that person. Hmm. And that idea was more terrifying to me than being separated forever from that individual. That sounded better. Really what sounded best to me was not being able, being allowed to opt out of existing forever. That's what mostly scared me is I couldn't fathom infinity as an eight year old. Um, (laughs) duh, I still can't now, but as an eight year old going through an existential crisis, I would be trying to fathom infinity. And that's what would cause me to cry at night because I just was so panicked about all of these ideas that I was so uncertain of, but there was no space within, um, within the narrative that I was raised in to vocalize those uncertainties to anyone. And I think that my parents doing the best that they could were trying to assure me with what they had a certainty, but that certainty actually felt horrifying to me because the idea that anyone was going to hell or the idea that I would be required to go to heaven, all, all of that felt so much scarier to me than I think that they understood or that I even had language to explain at the time. So that feeling as a child just kind of grew and grew and grew. And I kept, I mean, Southern Baptist, evangelicalism, charismatic expressions, Acts 29, you know, reformed, whatever. I kept chasing for the next 20 years from that point, just kept chasing these different expressions of Christianity, thinking maybe the that feeling of certainty would exist in the next one. And I kept going and I kept going and would last about two years in each expression until I would either leave or get kicked out. That's real. Um, (laughs) and it kept not being there. And so it was just a constant and it's really confusing for my family now. And even people I was close with then, because they knew me as someone who put on a really good display 
I'm like, I'm going to be a full-time missionary. I'm going to work in ministry. I'm a worship leader, all these things. And I, I spoke really overly confident about it. And because I was just so not confident within myself that I thought I could will myself or believe myself or talk myself into a confidence that I never had. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that, that might be the most succinct I've ever told that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That, I mean, that's, uh, that, that initial moment that you describe is just, I can understand why it's such a vivid memory for you, even if you don't, um, even if you, even if you don't recall every single thing, I mean, you remember a lot from that. It was extremely formative. Uh, and, um, man, that, that is such a, and to me, it, it just gets me, it gets me puzzled just about, you know, all these adults concerned about making sure that a child says some words in a certain order to right. assuage their concerns about your <laughs> salvation as they see it. And, destination and, of my soul. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, by virtue of that creating this compulsion or this, this like, I don't know whether that's the right word compulsion, but, um, but beginning this pattern of thinking for you. Um, and that, that was one of the things that I, I, you know, as you meant, as you, as you talked about that, as far as the sense of anxiety that you would feel throughout the subsequent years, um, and you being panicked and you said that you don't have that within these spheres, you, you didn't have the, the accepted like personality type for being, being a, a female and everything. Um, how did, how did people react to you? Like outside of your parents, you mentioned how your parents would, would try to, to calm you or, um, when you were young and try to try to alleviate your concerns. But whenever you expressed this sort of anxiety, you confided in someone, um, how, how did they respond to you in those moments? That is a great question. <laughs> and the core of some of my most traumatizing experiences, to be honest, um, some of the most significant things I've had to work through in therapy and in trauma therapy, um, are the experiences I had in my Christian education. Um, if you want to call it an education, that's a loose term for what I had. Um, I, my senior year, I mean, I kind of always, I kind of always caused some problems. And then even my, my, what I previously referenced about leaving one church and one youth group for another, um, had some issues with that specific youth pastor that was at that previous church. Um, he didn't like the fact that I was splitting up my time between two different youth groups, two different church congregations, because my mother went to one, um, and my father went to the other because, you know, to kind of tie this up a little bit, my mother did leave our family and was gone for a bit. And then she came back and I was living with her and then I was splitting up time. So this youth pastor that I had, um, pulled me aside and, you know, basically issued me an ultimatum and told me that he misquoted deeply misquoted scripture and um, said, use the whole, you can't serve God and money. And basically said, you can't go to two churches. So (laughs) if, yeah, no, and this is the thing, like it's laughable, but like, (laughs) holy shit. Also like that is, 
fucked up. And not to mention the fact that this is the same youth pastor that had kicked my cousin out of the youth group, um, maybe a year or two prior to that. Um, my cousin who had had some really deep trauma with his family, his father had left and his mother had died and we had taken my cousin in and he was my best friend for a brief period of time. And he, you know, he had some trauma and so he acted out and rather than our youth group being a safe place for him, I mean, the, the other kids in our youth group were a safe place for him, but the adults didn't like Kevin because he was a problem and he didn't, he didn't make our youth group look good on paper. And so, um, he was kicked out and he was told he wasn't allowed to come back. And I took that super personally and I spoke up and out against it and I was shut down a lot. And so I was kind of on the radar of being a little bit dangerous anyway. Um, and so then I was issued this ultimatum and was really offended by that ultimatum, went to the other youth group and told that youth pastor that this previous youth pastor had issued me said ultimatum. And that second youth pastor looked at me and he was like, Jamie, I absolutely don't care how often you're able to be here or not. Um, we're not here to use you for, cause I was seeing, I was like on the worship team too, which I think was a root of a lot. They wanted me to stay at that first church. And he was like, we're not here to use your gifts and talents. We're here to be a home for you. So however often you're able to be here is a delight to us. And I was like, cool decision made. Awesome. Perfect. I'm staying here. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that was, there, there was kind of this thread of like, I didn't take things sitting down and I felt like I always had a little bit of a target on me in church relationships. And then the school situation, um, similar kind of thing. I was never, I always kind of felt like I didn't have the right personality, um, for a female within Christianity. And, um, my senior year, a lot of that really came to a head. And I was not, I was, I was saying some things in our Bible class that were, um, upsetting some of the faculty and teachers and staff at my school, which one of those things I was saying was, this is a Bible class. We should probably read the Bible. I don't know why that was so upsetting. Um, <laughs> cause instead we were reading books about, cause they, for whatever reason, as seniors and high school classes in two genders, which is wild. And so we were reading, wasting our time reading shit like captivating. And I'm just sitting there in the back corner, like, should we maybe read the Bible? Possibly. Um, <laughs> that was upsetting. And then, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and then one of the other things I remember really well, there was, um, um, there was a whole lot that was happening during that period of time. Like, we had, man, we had, they had involved us in being hyper-political at that school, um, obviously for the Republican Party um, for, you know, years. Um, that was a big part of that school's um, ideology, so to speak. Um, and so there was a lot that started happening in my senior year. Um, and maybe it was happening before, but I just remember it my senior year, where um, there were conversations and lectures and things like that that were very um, – that were targeted at Islam specifically. And there, and that always made me really uncomfortable. Um, and, and there was one thing that happened one day where some story was told about a, <clears throat> a woman who had been, and yes, this is tragic, you know, absolutely. Um, but a woman who had been kidnapped and raped. And when she was returned to her family because of, um, a code of honor, um, within a specific, realm of belief within Islam, um, she had to be stoned. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the story. The story was the fact that it's supposed to be a male relative 
of the woman that stones her, that kills her, um, to restore honor to the family. And her father couldn't do it. And none of her brothers could do it. Her cousins could do it. And they had to reach out. They had to keep contacting family members who absolutely couldn't do it because of their love for this girl. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was maybe seven or eight cousins back. Someone so removed and disconnected that had literally never even met this woman that was the person that had to do it. And the way that this story was told to us in our Bible class was look at how evil Islam is. And I remember, again, getting myself into trouble, sitting there in the back corner, raising my hand and saying, Are, can we not take a second and look at the humanity in the story um, and the reality and, and engage with compassion over the fact that her father couldn't do it and her brothers couldn't do it? Like, Can we look at that for a second and talk about that and talk about the humanity that exists in this story rather than all Muslims are bad, which is what we're in. So we need to convert them so that they know Jesus and they don't stone each other anymore. Like that's not really the point. And so I remember just bringing up that idea and saying, can we maybe engage with the humanity of people who believe different things than us? And I was literally screamed at by both my teacher and a handful of girls in this class. And it was that I was also after a month of, um, behaving that way, talking that way, functioning that way in my school, I was blacklisted. It sounds really intense, but it's the only word I really know how to use from speaking or singing in any of our chapel services. And that might not sound like a big deal, but again, because I, I sang and it was a tiny school up until that, up prior to that point, um, I had been involved in a, in every, at least once, sometimes twice a month in chapel for years. And wow. then all of a sudden there was this noticeable block and that all of this kind of culminated in those specific teachers and faculty and staff and leadership at my school actually attempting to block me from being able to sing at our schools, at our, at my class's graduation. Now, that was something that for every year prior, this, the graduating class was allowed to pick, I mean, apart obviously from valedictorian and those specific roles that you kind of won yourself into by good grades and such, mm -hmm. um, the specifics of who, who prayed the prayers and who sang the songs and who played the, played the tunes were allowed to be picked by the senior class itself. And there was, uh, as, as the senior year went on, some of, some of the people who, um, were getting less mad at me and were starting to have more conversations with me within my senior class, it, within the students themselves started to notice that the thing that was happening was happening, which is like, we haven't seen you in any sort of position. And I'm like, yeah, I know I'm aware. Um, <laughs> And so they started to get a little hip to it. Gradually, my whole entire class got pretty hip to it. And there was a meeting that they had called, um, the faculty had called that, you know, they basically called our senior class to this meeting and was like, hey, so just so you guys know, um, this was like a couple weeks before graduation, just so you guys know, we're changing the rules this year and you guys aren't going to be allowed to pick who does what in the graduation ceremony. That's going to be our decision. And it, at that point, it had become so, it feels so strange even talking about this because it feels like I'm almost over elevating my role in the story, but it really was, this really is what happened. Um, but by that point, it, it had become so obvious to everyone in my senior class, I mean, we were 67 people. So when I say my friends, I literally mean all of us, like there were definitely groups, but we all 
knew one another right. well. Yeah. We were such a tiny class. It had become so clear that that's what was happening, that we collectively kind of threw, threw a fit enough and pushed back on it enough um, that, and luckily we had had a brand new principal that year. And so we were able to appeal to him a little bit, even though these teachers had thought that they could kind of manipulate him into going with what they wanted. Um, and because he was new to the whole thing and he was a genuinely really kind man, um, some people from our senior class were like, Hey, this just isn't how it's been done. And we feel a little bit gypped. And so he was like, you know what? Good point. Let's, let's not do that. Let's let you guys pick. And so that's the only from November of my senior year up until graduation in May, I hadn't sung once. And for the fact that that was something that happened two to three times per month for years prior to that point, it was pretty, pretty obviously intentional. Um, and I, I, I don't even have to suspect whether or not it was because of the things I was saying in these Bible classes and, you know, the quote unquote challenges I was giving people to maybe consider things from a different perspective. I know that it was that because I heard, it's so weird that I'm talking about a teacher in the realm of gossip. It's bizarre, but I had heard through the grapevine that one specific teacher, um, that really felt like a betrayal because she kind of stepped in as a mother figure for me for a few years there, um, had decided early on in my senior year that my, her words were that, apparently my walk with God was not correct. And so I couldn't be trusted to lead other people because the risk is that I would lead them astray. Um, so it was weird. I, and again, I, I, I have, I really do have to think that that has, if anything, at least equal parts to do with what I was saying and also just the, how I was saying it, the personality that the, I was saying it from is it just never, it never set well. I was never really the right type of woman. And the more women that I speak to that have come out of, um, whether have, whether they've come out of Christianity altogether or have left certain abusive and manipulative, um, uh, angles of it, so to speak. Um, there's so many women that feel this way that we just are not the right kind of woman. And so we keep kind of we keep trying to shut ourselves down or talk less or, um, serve more or do things that are very, um, opposed to our natural personalities that are unique and different and wonderful. Um, we keep trying to shut those things down. So as to be the perfect kind of Proverbs 31 helpmate kind of woman. Um, yeah. And right. it sucks. Like yeah. I hear it all the time. I don't think I've ever talked to one single woman who's like, no, I felt like I was kind of nailing. I felt like, like I was like, exactly. <laughs> Maybe there's going to be some way that you're not, apparently you're not nailing it. You're not exactly <laughs> what they want from you. And so much about your happiness and your satisfaction for your life is held hostage um, in light of whether or not you figure it out. You figure out how to be the right kind of woman. And that's, I mean, I don't, I don't mince words about this shit anymore. Like that's abusive. That's absolutely abusive and it's inhumane. Um, and so I'd super felt that. Um, during my adolescence with Christian education and with my youth group experience, for sure. Sounds like it was, it, <laughs> you, you weren't making those things up. <laughs> that's, you know, and that's, yeah. you know, no. it's like, and I actually, it's, it's no, yeah. <laughs> the, I actually have, um, 
it's good to know. I've like checked these things with people I went to high school with just to make sure. I'm like, I'm not remembering incorrectly, am I? And they're like, no, for sure, you're not. And I am at the point, actually, it's interesting where um, more than one woman now that I went to high school with and even some specifically that I graduated with, like in my class, have now, they've started to reach out to me to ask to hire me to help them heal from the way that we were raised. And that is, I just, I find that astonishing and fascinating and very significant. Hmm. Well, I, I definitely want to get into to your work in in a little bit. I would I would I want to because of how great these, how interesting and helpful and everything these stories are. I do want to to get a little bit more actually in this sort of historical line of of how you got to where you are, because because mm-hmm. you're just describing them so well. <laughs> and that, um, okay. so um, so you have this this through line of of not feeling like you're the right type of person for the system that you found yourself in. Um, but then you also have this like, um, desire to, to keep trying to alleviate what seems like this underlying anxiety about the whole proposition. (laughs) Is that a, is that an accurate representation of, okay. Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a very good way to put that. I, I feel like, um, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. It was this constant panic and anxiety over the fact that I felt, yeah, I felt so panicked about needing to belong mm-hmm. to it that I was just constantly trying to, I was either, I was going back and forth between either um, behavior modifi- modif- modifying the shit out of myself to try and make myself the better kind of woman or just getting a exhausted and being like, fuck this shit. It's your problem, not mine. I was like kind of going back and forth while at the same time, asking myself constantly, why am I trying so hard to be a part of this thing that I'm not even really certain is what I want to be a part of. But all I knew is that I didn't want to be alone. And so I couldn't imagine a world outside of being a part of it because it was the only world I'd ever been offered. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's why, yeah, that's the way you put it was really, was really well put. And that, that is a lot of the reason why I kept switching denominations after denomination after denomination was that feeling of, well, maybe it wasn't here, but maybe it's over here and we'll try this one now. Yeah. And you you said earlier that you went to, to a number of different types of churches. Like I think you mentioned like an Acts 29 church and some other, and a charismatic church and, um, and a couple of other ones. And you, um, the way you described it, it sounds like you had like a succession of them. Um, what was going on? What was going on like in the the parallel part of your life outside of outside of church as far as like work or school or the other parts of interacting with the rest of the world outside of the mm-hmm. church lens? Um, what else is going on in your life around those times and when you were in those those places? Mm-hmm. That is such that's such a good question because um, I already love my answers to it because it <laughs> makes sense to me now. It's amazing. Um, my initial uh, gut reaction to your question is that I didn't have a life outside of it. I really didn't. Um, I, like I said, it was kind of all consuming for me because I needed it to work. I needed it to be the place where I belonged. I needed it to yeah. fit. And 
Um, so every, um, pretty early on, I, I think, like I said before, I had that experience of, um, well, and this maybe deserves some illumination. I remember being a kid and being raised Southern Baptist. And, um, I felt like the only options that were in front of me was as a woman, the way you succeed inside of the narrative. And so the way I'm wired is like, succeeding is the only option. Um, that was a Christian thing. And also just, I'm super type a, and so I was like, (laughs) I have to succeed. So what's the best I can do. And the best I could do as a female, what was presented to me, obviously it was super, you know, some heteronormative bullshit, but it would, um, it was basically, well, you can marry a pastor and I would look around me and I would see my pastor and my youth pastor. And they, I mean, they wore dad jeans and they like, <laughs> they were just so not hip and they tried so hard to be hip and they were super out of touch and it was embarrassing to watch them try. And I was like, no, definitely not. I, there's no way I could not ever, I don't ever want to be married to that at all. <laughs> and so the only other option I had for success was, oh, well, if you're not going to get married, because I, I just immediately meant, thought that that meant I just couldn't get married married. And so I was like, well, if I'm not going to get married, I'm going to be single. So then what options open to me? And there were all these stories about all of these like single female Christian missionaries who went to China and like went to the Amazon. And I was like, well, tight, those bitches get to travel. So (laughs) I want to travel. So let's do that instead. So that literally was like from like 13 or 14 years old, I was like, cool, screw every other thought or idea I might have about what I want to do with my life. And this is it. I'm going to be a missionary is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be in ministry. And it just so happened that I also had talents for communication um, and also for singing. And so it was like, cool, tight. You're an evangelist and you are a worship leader um, or, you know, background singer for the most part, because you can't lead, you're a lady. So that came later when I found, you know, more charismatic expressions. But for the time being, it was, you do background vocals, that's fine. So I was like, cool, great. This is great. So in in an answer to your question, in, in one realm, it is there, I didn't have a life outside of it, because I was convinced that ministry was my thing. And in one form or another would always be my thing. Um, pretty early on, you know, 11, 12 years old, I started writing, and it was very, um, it was definitely therapeutic at the time. And cause I didn't really feel like I have this one poem that the opening, one of the, one of the lines, one of the opening lines in it is, um, saying something about maybe we write because we need someone to talk to. And that was definitely my experience is I just needed someone to talk to. So I started writing and started writing poetry and prose and narrative type things that I didn't really have names for at the time. But I, definitely felt like that for me was still a part of my mission and my, you know, whether it was I'm a missionary or a leader or evangelist or whatever it was, mm-hmm. that was always the guiding theme for me. Now, the thing that's fascinating for me, um, that I look back on now is that I did have one single area of my life that, and I won't say always because I entered into this area when I was about 19 years old. Uh, um, the one area of my life that actually did exist outside of the influence of, um, at least in an inner level in some, in some way, um, existed outside of that negative influence of, um, evangelical culture was the area of my sexuality. And I, in every other area of my life, I was trying so hard to assimilate and to be the right kind of woman and to lead the right way and to go on the right trips and to say the right things and to pray the right way and to read my Bible every day and do all these things. And yet 
I was always very aware of the fact that I was, I don't know, I had, I had a, I had an experience of myself being sexual that I never really felt shame about at all. Um, and then when I actually did eventually enter into a sexual relationship with a partner when I was night, I think I was 19 or 20. Um, I, I didn't feel shame about that either. Um, and the only times that I did feel shame throughout the period of time of, you know, from about 10, 11, 12, when I, you know, discovered masturbation and, you know, discovered the experiences of, of engaging with myself sexually to the point where I was 19 and then beyond where I'm actually having sex with other people. It was something that, and I don't even know if language kind of fails being able to explain it. I, I, it existed in a completely other realm of my engagement with Christianity. And what I mean by that, it makes sense to me now, um, because those two are very integrated. Well, I'm not a Christian, but you know what I mean? Like belief in spirituality and my sexuality are very integrated, Mm -hmm. but at the time, the beliefs that I was apparently supposedly required to have and to hold and to assimilate to within the belief system that I was desperate to be a part of and was trying so hard to succeed within, their sexual ethics never made sense to me. They never made sense to me. And so I kind of behaved over here in a different way that felt correct to me and felt felt right. And I had no way to explain or to give an answer for what felt correct. Yeah. I'd love you to have you elaborate on that a little bit about how that, you know, despite being so deeply entrenched in this culture for your entire life, um, it didn't make sense. I'd love for you. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to hear that. (laughs) Oh, me too. I would love to know what I mean by that. And that's the, I, that's the thing. There's a, there's a little bit of magic to it, um, that I think speaks, now to what I know I'm on this planet to do, um, to, to do work on with, with myself and create space to help other people do that work on themselves. But I think that there is a hum there within me that, um, just, it spoke to integration rather than restriction. And it spoke to, um, I think my, my turmoil and my, my inner battle was the fact that I didn't feel like I had the permission for, my sexual identity and my sexual expression as a human being to integrate with my belief system that I was so desperate to be a part of, um, and that I really wanted to find beautiful. And there were moments of my life where, you know, I, I was kind of a mystic at heart growing up. And so, and you know, that kind of followed me and still does, but I, I wanted them to be integrated. And yet though my belief, system kept telling me that it couldn't be, there was no option for that. And so my turmoil didn't come from the fact that I was engaging with myself and engaging with my sexuality, that that was causing me grief and shame because I, because of my sin, you know, I was feeling convicted. That wasn't actually my reality. My reality was the fact that I didn't, I felt like there were two versions of me and they both felt actually one actually felt more honest than the other. <laughs> and, and the, the me that was, um, was engaging with my sexuality and was allowing myself to be a human being growing up and, uh, and growing and exploring and learning and, and validating the sex drive that you have when you, you are 19, 20, 22, 23, 25 years old. Um, that felt so normal. And my conflict was the fact that I didn't feel like I was allowed for that to feel normal. And it was so confusing. And, that's what caused me 
honestly, if I'm going to call something trauma, like within the middle of that experience, that's what caused me the trauma is the fact that I had, I felt required to keep this part of myself secret. And I felt required to date only a certain type of person that, you know, I couldn't date, like I, I wasn't allowed to date a good Christian man. Cause he wasn't, you know, he wouldn't engage with me. And it's, I'm not saying this was like an ultimatum, but I knew that like, I wanted, I wanted sex to be a part of a relationship that I had with a person. I, I knew that that was something that was always true for me because it was a way to connect with another human being. And I understand that very deeply now. And I know where that comes from, but that at the time I didn't have the language for that. And I felt like there was actually something wrong with me for the fact that I wanted to integrate that into a relationship with a person. And man, I've talked to, and this was true for me. And I, I, I talked to so many women that we, at some point for almost all of us, um, and I guarantee you, I'm going to get people who from this podcast are going to contact me and say, Hey, yeah, definitely me too. And I thought I was the only one there absolutely was a point for so many of us women raised inside of that narrative of, you know, purity culture and virginity culture that because we felt ourselves as sexual beings, surprise, surprise, we're humans. Um, we actually thought we were sex addicts. And I, at a certain point in my life, in my early twenties, considered going to, um, a 12 step program for sex addiction and the amount of women that I've talked to that have come out of this same belief system. And regardless of where they are now, whether they're still in it or they're, you know, they've moved out past it. Um, there was a point for them as well that they thought that they were sex addicts only because they were women who were sexual. And it, I, it was just such it was so strange because it, it really is in getting back to your actual question. Like it was the one area of my life where I felt like this is when I'm being the real me is when I'm acknowledging this about myself and I'm giving it space and permission. Um, and before I knew how to integrate that in a healthy way, um, it was basically just for me in the experience and the act of having sex with another person. Um, so that at the same time, what was happening is this, um, I felt like I was, I was, I felt like I had split myself in two and I was ripping myself apart because I was trying to attend church on Sundays. And I was also trying to integrate these parts of myself that I felt confident about. But the church I was attending on Sundays was telling me that the only way that I could be the right kind of person, much less the right kind of woman is if I somehow managed to succeed in not being sexual at all. Um, and that, so there really wasn't any area of my life that wasn't touched by this belief system. Um, all of my friends, all of my, um, behaviors, most of my media, um, my life choices, the places I moved, why I moved there. Um, those were all very determined by and navigated by my experience of Christianity. And yet I could never quite hang with the, um, true love waits rallies. And I could never quite hang with those, those super restrictive, um, kind of, I don't know what parties that they tried to throw for, <laughs> for women that were like, this is the right way to do it. And I'm like, I just don't, that doesn't make sense to me. So it's a really, I see it now. I see it super clearly now. I totally get it now. Um, but at the time it definitely made me, I remember, gosh, I'll, I'll kind of neatly tie the answer to this question up with this story. I remember, um, once when I, I think I was 23, I was sitting on my bed in my apartment and I came across this website, which I don't think exists anymore, but at the time, um, it was called the good woman project. And I remember 
coming across that website and it was, it was great. It was like a great thing. It was like a collection of, you know, essays that women wrote and to share with one another. It was a little online community. And, but I remember looking at that and seeing the landing page that in, you know, large print said good woman project. And I immediately closed my laptop and said out loud to myself, no one will ever call you a good woman. And that feeling that, that, that was one of the lowest feelings of my life. That was one of the worst feelings I've ever had because I, I truly believed that. And the only reason that I believed that is because I'd had sex before. And that's insane. Like in that moment, I wasn't thinking anything about any other aspect, any aspect of my character, whether I was kind or whether I worked hard or whether I was brave or whether I, you know, treated people with compassion or what I did with my money or how I spent my time. I wasn't thinking about any of those things. I literally looked at that and said, you're, this isn't, this isn't for you. You're not allowed to be a good woman inside of this belief system that you're a part of, um, simply because you've had sex. And what I couldn't reconcile was not the fact that I'd had sex, but what I couldn't reconcile was the fact that I didn't on my own, I didn't feel guilty or strange or wrong or bad about the fact that I had had sex. It made sense to me, um, because I was 23 years old and it was the inability to integrate myself as a whole person with those two existing things that caused me so much pain. And that's what caused me to not feel like I could ever truly actually belong. Um, it wasn't because I was wrestling with a thing and it wasn't because I felt like I kept sinning and I couldn't help it or handle it. It was the fact that I, I had, again, I didn't have the language for it, but I had this, um, this deep belief that this could be a part of who I am along with, you know, the type of religion that I chose to practice. And I just kept feeling like I, that was the wall I kept hitting. Mm, and, uh, yeah. no matter what denomination or expression I found myself in. That's, I mean, that's, that, that's a devastating moment <laughs> to, uh, just because I, I, the way you describe it, I mean, you, you're, I, so the, I'm, I'm, have all these things sort of racing through my head right now. One of the, one of them is basically that like um, one of the ways that, and one of the more common, common ways that purity culture screws with people is by, you know, casting doubt on people's sexual impulses, um, whatever they may be. Uh, and the net, like natural, <laughs> just natural impulses yeah. that yeah. come with being human. Um, yes from the way you describe it, you didn't actually, you didn't have the guilt or the shame about that. You actually had the guilt and the shame about not having the guilt and the shame. Yes. Yeah. That's 100% exactly the way to say it. Yes. So, um, I mean, and, but the, the, the terrible thing and the terrible thing that, um, that for you as, as a woman is that it still was trying to, to define your value. Like, yeah, even like the fact that you didn't have guilt and shame about not having guilt and shame or however it is <laughs> like, um, mm -hmm. yeah. that is impacting your value as an overall person like that. I mean, that's devastating. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it affects, it does lead into and affect every other area of your life. Um, like I said, I think, I think I'm 
I'm understanding even more about it as I'm even talking about it now, but what it's effectively ended up experience that I just, you know, talked about, um, the result of it was essentially splitting me into what I thought were two different people. Um, and I dissociated completely. And there were other things that had happened in my life, like, you know, other traumas, um, that had served to add into and contribute to that dissociation. Um, but I, I definitely believed, I very much absolutely believed that there were two versions of me. And I spoke about it in that way because I felt like if I spoke about it in the way that there are two versions of me, then I could still kind of keep half of me in the Christian world. If I was, if I talked about it, like there were two different versions of me than to the Christians, it sounded like it was something I was wrestling with and battling with and like, Uh. At least yeah. doing the work to try and become unsexual. I swear, I swear, guys, like I'm trying to win here. I'm trying to become unsexual. I'm trying to be the right kind of woman. I'm trying. And the reality was, is that that's what caused me so much stress is the fact that I kept having to keep that persona up. And it just, it caused this rift just to widen and widen and widen and widen further and further and further until I just, I couldn't recognize either version of myself at all. Um, and it wasn't until... And this, I mean, it didn't happen in this exact moment, but one of the, I will forever think about this being one of the more life-changing moments I've ever had um, in the beginning of the reintegration process for me was um, actually someone that I had um, gone on on a few dates with. I uh, was in like a, this was just a couple of years ago and I was in the um, probably six to eight months range of my my religious deconstruction process process. Um, yeah, maybe about eight or nine months probably. And, um, so I was panicking about everything. Like nothing made sense. Up was down, down was up. There was no ground beneath me. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and I lost, I was just like rapidly losing so many people in my life because I wasn't attending church and I didn't know how to explain it. But anyway, I, so there was other areas, all that to say there were other things in my life that were contributing to the fact that I felt really unstable. Um, and at this moment, this particular moment in time, I'd gone out on a few dates with someone and had, found myself just like needing, because I was so unstable, I just needed to control something around me. And so I had convinced myself that if I sat down with him and I had a conversation with him and told him how much, you know, I actually, I don't want this to be casual. I actually do like you. And what was going on that I didn't know was going on under the the surface is I was convincing myself I could control and manipulate something like him to be in a relationship with me. Um, because I just needed something within my control and he's a healthy enough person that he engaged that conversation, but he also saw that that's what was going on. Um, and you know, he was super kind and he told me, he was like, Hey, it's, I love that you like talked about this with me. I love that you told me how you feel. You should do that more often. Cause I had expressed something about how I, you know, I've never really done this. And I really told someone how I feel. He's like, no, you're good at it. You should definitely tell more people how you feel. That's a thing. Um, he's like, but also I just want to, and he had come from a, a very similar background to me as, you know, evangelical Christian. And he was like, Hey, I just, this might be some like an aside and maybe has nothing to do with anything, but the way that you're talking to me right now, um, you are, he pinpointed my language. He was like, you're speaking a lot um, about these seemingly two different versions of you that there's like one, you who's doing, trying to do all the right things. And there's the other, you who just can't seem to do those right things. Um, he was like, I don't know, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but I would just encourage you to entertain the possibility that aren't two versions of you 
that there's only one and that both of those exist in that one person. Hmm. And I was so offended at the time. I was so offended. And I didn't, I, I didn't respond as if I was offended in the moment. I was like, cool. Thanks for that. Appreciate <laughs> it. And I got in my car and I was driving and I was like, what the fuck does he know? Like I was so upset at the time. <laughs> I remember like writing about it later and just being like, he has no idea. And I think at that time I was still trying to like desperately trying to maybe possibly please a God that I wasn't even certain was there or not. Cause you know, deconstruction and <clears throat> over, over, but that started that thought process of, Oh my God, is there really maybe only one version of me and my, all of my behavior can maybe go under this umbrella of it's all me rather than a me I'm trying to kill in order to let another me flourish. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a process since that point. And I obviously didn't start believing, believing in that and letting that letting that reality take root and allowing me to reintegrate back to myself immediately. But that, conversation, um, planted something that's been a, 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 a guiding theme for me. And I've talked to him about it many times. I'll, I'll send him texts or when I see him, I'll just randomly be like, Hey, by the way, thanks for changing my life again, just <laughs> as, as a casual reminder to you that that was an extremely powerful thing. Cause I'd never really had someone say that, that to me. My only communication with people was through that same lens of this is sin and this is not sin. And you're trying to get rid of the sins so that you can stop sinning so you can be holy. And he was just like, I think it's all just there. I think it's just like all you and maybe think about it that way. And it was super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. It's not always Jekyll and Hyde. Sometimes it's just the one guy. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the concept behind it, which is what he was expressing to me and what I know to be very true now, is that you don't you don't get rid of those, quote unquote, bad behaviors or self-destructive or however you want to define them, you know, sin type behaviors from shame. They don't go anywhere from shame. Um, mm -hmm. They they are pacified through integration and through acceptance and through love. And, um, it is possible that those behaviors that you have learned and been taught to label us as, as sin or as bad things, um, are there to teach you something and they're messengers and they're actually there to tell you something that's going on more deeply under the surface that you have not had the permission to engage with and to understand about yourself. And so it's possible that they're actually kinder than you think. And that's why it's helpful to think about it as if there's only one you who just acts and reacts and lives rather than there's a version of me that I need to kill or um, suppress or fix. Yeah. Um, and I'm here yeah. to talk to you yeah. about the yeah. number one. There's just one me. Nobody like me. Take a look and see. Just one me. The sound of my voice is like no voice that you've heard. Whatever I am, I know I'm one special bird. There's just one me. Nobody like me. Look around and you'll agree. In the whole wide world of people that you see, there is just one me. Well, in the spirit well, of in integration, I'd... <laughs> I'd like to really um uh you you in this in this last in this last story you've told it it's definitely hinted that that you're in a far different place than you were when you were feeling guilty about not feeling guilty. Yeah. <laughs> so what um 
and yeah, let's let's see if we can sort of integrate that into a, a, the this part of your story. Where what led you from that moment? What sort of things did you um, pass through? You mentioned we mentioned and um, in some emails before. Uh, setting up this interview time that you actually spent some time in what you described as a cult. Um, mm-hmm. So that clearly would have been a formative experience as well and something you would have yeah. to process and come out of. Um, mm-hmm. But you've, you've talked on uh, the podcast, the great podcast, the life after um, about your, your current work as, and um, I'm going to bungle it cause I don't have it in front of me. Integrated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm what was that? Uh, oh, I knocked a knocked a tray on, on my desk. Well, okay. It's not a, like breaking glass, so I'm glad it's <laughs> no, breaking in your window. It's, it's just a tray. Sorry. Um, so you you went from you went from that moment you were in 23 through being in a um, through an experience in a cult um, to where you are now, um, advising people uh, with about integrated health. Um, mm-hmm. So what? How do we get from from there to here? <laughs> Great question. Your answer is trauma. Um, oh, no. But honestly, though, it's trauma and it's suffering. And that's really the only teacher. Um, <clears throat> no. So <clears throat> I the best way that I know how to describe um, what led me to my rock bottom, um, which occurred about three years ago. And trust me, I'm not naive enough to think that at 29 years old, I've had my only rock bottom and then I'll never hit it again. No, that's, that, that's definitely not true. But thus far, my rockiest and bottomest rock bottom, um, mm-hmm. was about three years ago. And what led me to that point, <clears throat> the best way that I have figured out how to describe it only makes sense. If you have seen arrested development, have you seen <laughs> development? Yes, I have. <laughs> okay, great. Perfect. Most people usually say yes. Um, that's great. So not season there, four. It, I didn't finish season four. Oh, that's fine. It's un it's fine, but it's unimportant to this story. So right now it's done. <laughs> okay. Um this season. It's great. So there I don't know what season it's in or what episode at all, but um do you remember when at one point Joe Bluth is <clears throat> um he very briefly marries Amy Poehler's character. Yes. Yeah. Like she kind of pops up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the way that the voiceover, Ron Howard's voiceover says, is that it happened because of a series of escalating dares. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my relationship with religion. Um, uh, okay. it, yeah. It was just <laughs> honestly the best way I know how to describe it. And it was just, it was so I moved from, you know, these more kind of, um, reserved expressions. I was Southern Baptist for a bit. I spent a little brief time in Catholicism, uh, very standard evangelical non-denominational spent some time with Presbyterians, uh, did the Acts 29 thing for a little bit and then started kind of branching out into a little bit, like a little bit weirder kind of waters. Um, and started going to a, a little bit more of a Pentecostally charismatic type of church. And, um, I was a part of a couple of those, but the main one being one that I had moved to Nashville from St. Louis to go to a Christian ministry school. Um, yeah, that's what you want to call it. It's weird, but, um, it, so I, I moved here to go to that school and through going to that ministry school, I got connected to a church in England. Um, cause you go to the, you do the ministry school for, I think 
nine months and then you go on like a month long outreach somewhere. Mm. And so the outreach that I went on was to, um, be a part of, uh, to, yeah, to be a part of this budding 24 seven prayer and worship movement thing that was happening at this church in England that was partnered with, um, at least in its vision and the inception of that vision with, um, the international house of prayer in Kansas city. And so this was the house of prayer Europe, basically it was, there's a lot of like houses of prayers all over the place. Um, <laughs> that but for people that get the same idea and, you know, vision, but this was the first one outside of the United States that was actually, actually connected with IHOP in Kansas city. And so they were starting this thing and there was a handful of us that when we were there, the offer invitation was extended to us to come back and be interns. And the way that that would work with the, um, with travel and visas and all of that was that as Americans, we could be in the UK for up, up to six months from three to six months without a visa. And then we would, from that point, we would have to go back to the States and then apply for a visa. And so the vision, the idea was basically, Hey, the Americans who are thinking that you know, the ones, those of us who had received the invitation and felt really compelled to do this thing. Um, it was like, Hey, y'all can come over for six months, feel it out, see what you think, see how it goes. And then you'll go back to the States. So there's no strings attached if you don't want to come back. Um, but if you do want to come back, then great. Um, if all goes well, we'd love to have you and we will start, we'll do the visa process for you, for you to come back on a two year long charity worker visa. And so I was like, cool, that sounds safe. That sounds good. Let's do it. And so, um, literally a year, almost to the exact day that I'd moved to Nashville for that school, um, I moved to England to go do that school. Um, and so I was sort of on staff, sort of not, I was, you know, an intern, so I was raising support, all of that, but I was a missionary. I'd succeeded in my goal. I was a Christian missionary and I was, had to go fund me and I was doing all the things and I was a worship leader. So it was like all these boxes were checked and I felt like, at that point in my life, I think I was 25, 26 years old, um, that all of the things that I had oriented myself towards that I thought that if I do all the right things and I succeed within this narrative, like this is who I'll be, I was there all of a sudden. And so the, I was in a different country. So the travel thing was there. Um, I was leading worship. So that checked off. I was a missionary, like other people were paying me to live, you know, that whole thing. Um, it all checked off and I was like, cool. Like, I did it, <laughs> which is, you know, asinine to think at 25 that I was like, done, got it, finished, good, we're good. But that's really what I thought, because that's kind of the certainty that 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 belief system sort of signs you up for is like, as if somewhere to arrive. It's the idea of like arrival that is very toxic. Um, so I thought I'd arrived, thought I was good. Um, but the only thing is that what I brought with me there was some of that baggage that we were previously talking about, about the shame for not feeling ashamed. Um, I was actually in this, uh, partnership. I don't know if I would call it a relationship because it was, um, in the very not Southern way, bless his heart. It was, of um, <laughs> back and forth on and off constant relationship with, uh, partnership with this, with this man, um, that it was all, it was completely 100% my fault that it wasn't consistent. Um, because he was always very consistent with me. Um, it started before I moved to Nashville and he definitely wanted to be with me, but my hangup was the fact that he wasn't a Christian and he had been one pre previously. We actually, um, went to, you know, neighboring or nearby churches, um, to one another, but he had, 
weighed it out and made the decision for himself that that's not a belief system he had anymore. And so the re- a really simple shitty way to put that is like he was someone that I couldn't convert. I couldn't missionary date this man and I couldn't, you know, get him on my side and save him because he couldn't be saved. Like he had he decided like that it wasn't for him. And that with that idea of him just deciding it wasn't for him was so far out of the realm of my possibility of that being a thing that people could do. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, it was a constant back and forth. I knew that he was one of the best people I'd ever met and he was so kind and so consistent and that he, you know, over, over time grew to, um, love me and support me and was very consistent in the fact that he loved me and supported me, even though I was a part of this religious narrative that he didn't, necessarily want to be a part of. Um, but he supported me and also our, we had a sexual relationship with one another. And again, that felt very comfortable and right in the moments where we were together. And then I would go back to this ministry school that I was a part of in Nashville and immediately just be covered in this guilt when I would step foot in the church. And I just like, you know, these God knows God's mad, God's upset. My life might fall apart now. And it was just like, it was, I was, it was, I was so anxious and it was a constant back and forth. And so I kept being with him and breaking up with him and being with him again and breaking up with him. Um, and so by the time that the offer was on the table for me to move to England, that one half of me, the Christian half of me thought that like, Oh, this is a great excuse to like cut and run. Like, let's get out of here. Let's go be holy. Like, let's get away from this like evil man and his influence. And the other part of me was very much, you know, aware that I, I was very connected to him and I cared for him a lot. And he, again, to his credit, you know, his position was, you're going to go over there and that's fine. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here. And I ended up, I found myself in England carrying the baggage of the fact that I had had this beautiful partnership and, you know, or potentially beautiful partnership and relationship with this person. But because it was sexual and because he was not a Christian, I went into my experience in England, um, also because it was a very, like I said, a very charismatic culture. And so they talked a lot about um, like prophets and people being prophets. And the joke was that one of joke, but it wasn't a joke, was that one of the pastors there, um, the there were two head pastors, a husband and wife. And the joke was that the wife um, could read your mail. So I was constantly panicked that God was going to tell one of my pastors and one of the leaders that I had had sex. And so I, and because of the way I was, you know, raised in the attempts of purity culture to tell me that that's the full measure of my character. Um, I was convinced that if anyone found out that I had had this, you know, previous and even still, you know, current relationship with this non-Christian man that they would kick me out. And for the first couple of months that I was there, I was, um, super hesitant and I didn't really open up and I was just really afraid of being found out. And, um, there also was some, some things that on the previous trip before I decided to move there that had come out about my relationship and the nature, the nature of my relationship with my family and specifically with my mother and how that wasn't very strong. And, and I, I see now that that was definitely something that they preyed upon, um, with me is that they knew that my experience of the idea of family was very, um, damaged. And so to make an even longer story short, there was a conference that was happening, um, a couple of months into my time over there. And I, there was one 
talk, there was one or someone who was um, one of the pastors that was there that was visiting one of the visiting pastors did some sort of sermon on, um, you know, being honest or I don't know, something, something to where it registered in me that I needed to confess to this specific female pastor who could read my mail that, um, Oh God, like this is the worst thing ever. Like I've had sex. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Kick me out if you want, you know? So I pulled her aside and I did the whole thing, confessed to her. And, you know, she, she literally so fucked up, man. She literally like looked at me and was like, I already knew. Like it was so weird. It was so <laughs> weird. So weird. Like, oh, it makes me, it makes me feel so slimy thinking about it now. But because that was like, that was a manipulative tactic for sure. Um, and that was something that I observed and still do observe them doing with people a lot, but it was kind of this, like, I already knew and it's okay. Like, I don't love you less for telling me the truth. I actually love you more. And she did this thing where she like adopted me essentially in that conversation. She was like, you're my daughter now, because now there's no, now there's no sin between us. There's no sin and there's no shame blocking you from relationship with me now, now that you've confessed. And now that you've, you know, gotten this out in the open. And I know that you're not that woman anymore, essentially was what it was. It was like, that's who you were. It's not who you are, which, you know, the subconscious message of that is like, cool. No more sex is basically what that is. So, um, now it's not who you are. And now that I know that you're going to end this relationship with this man, because it's not the relationship God wants for you. Now we're inviting you into our, into our family. And she literally took me in and reintroduced me to her husband as like, uh, like he, like my father and like, she's my mother. And she was like, this is our daughter. Like, this is Jamie. And this, and she's our daughter. And like introduced me to other leaders in that room at that time. as like, this is our daughter, Jamie. And it was this, uh, this feeling of belonging. Um, because if you remember my, a lot of my theme of what I've been sharing so far was the fact that I could never, a lot of the reason why I could never be honest with myself and never actually leave Christianity is because I desperately needed to belong because I didn't have a sense of belonging in my own biological family. And that moment felt like everything that I, every everything that my life had been leading up to was this is where I was always meant to belong. This place is where I was always meant to be a daughter. And this is where my parents, my mother and my father always have been. And again, I think about it now as I'm telling you this story and I'm like, that's creepy as fuck. Like, but at the time it felt so incredible. And I mean, that's the nature of a cult um, is it, you know, and, and there definitely was, and in this, you know, like they had, um, not so delicately encouraged me to break off this relationship with this man. Um, they also not so delicately encouraged me to, you know, because I was in such a vulnerable place, like maybe distance yourself from other relationships that you have in back in the United States that aren't, that aren't strong Christians. Um, and the ironic thing is like this place had such a specific idea of what, what strong Christians looked like. And dude, it was like militant. It was bizarre. Like the way that they would pray, would be like hyper violent militant language. They would actively pray against the mosque up the street. And Ooh. we would, you know, stay up until three or four in the morning, just like singing these like really strange, like songs about how we're in an army. And it was just so fucking weird. <laughs> and so the whole thing was like, if people, their whole message to me, and I don't know if this is, I'm sure they said this to other people, but in my vulnerable state that I was in, that I needed to protect, it was like, well, the way that they would say it is that you know, you, you can't risk being in close relationship with anyone who isn't sold out, who isn't completely sold out to this vision. And 
that I basically allowed myself from that point to, to become and to continue to become indoctrinated with that idea. And so I did, I distanced myself from other people. I have people that I, at this point in my life are, you know, over, over the last couple of years have steadily reconnected with who have told me that they, they distanced themselves from me when they were seeing me speak and behave that way because it was scaring them because I had become a different person. Um, they definitely, this, this place also had, um, they had a, I don't know, I guess a doc, yeah, a doctrine, um, that there was a hierarchy in heaven and conveniently enough, that's where this whole like sold out kind of language came from. Um, conveniently enough, the ones who were the most sold out for not just for God, but for this specific vision of 24 seven prayer and worship, um, were the ones who got to, uh, be at the top of the hierarchy in heaven. And what's really Sweet. creepy. Yeah. Right. I know super tight. So, I mean, I mean, come on, like what a fucking circle jerk. Like obviously <laughs> you're going to have a doctrine of a hierarchy of heaven. Like clearly we're at the top, the ones doing the, I mean, duh, obviously. <laughs> but what was really scary is that the way that they express, and I don't remember where they got this from in scripture, but they were so confident that, you know, they got it from the Lord, but, um, the view of heaven that they talked about within that idea was, um, those at the top got to be in charge of other people. They were basically talking about slavery. They were basically saying that Christians who, who had other things going on in their lives, um, who were doing other professions and choosing other things for themselves that weren't 24 seven prayer and worship, they obviously would get to go to heaven. Um, but they wouldn't get to enjoy all of the realities of heaven. And as a matter of fact, you would get to be in charge of them because you sacrificed on this side of eternity that they would now have to sacrifice on that side of eternity. And because of that doctrine, you had people who were dropping out of law school, who were leaving their medical practice, um, families who were quitting their jobs, like parents who were quitting their jobs and had children to provide for that had no idea how they were going to provide, but you know, God was going to provide just so they could come and sing songs to an empty room for two hours at a time, roughly 40 hours a week. And they absolutely manipulated people into getting into relationships with one another. They manipulated people in and out of jobs. Um, and, and then for those of us that are, were coming from different countries, they either successfully, cause there's a few still over there. Um, they either successfully or tried to manipulate us into changing. I mean, we were, I mean, we were told constantly that if you had any other vision or idea or desire for your life, that that was sinful. You weren't allowed to have dreams. I vividly remember one, one, you know, session, one worship session where, um, it was expressed very passionately. I won't say screamed, but yelled, um, at us that, um, it, you're, you're not allowed to have desires for your own life. You're not allowed to have dreams. Um, this is where basically where all of your dreams come to be laid down on the altar. Um, because the dream that God has for you is more important. So anything that you are interested in or desire or want, you have to get rid of in order to do this thing, because this is more important. Um, and nothing's forbidden. I need an apple, then no one's being eaten. I want to start again back at the beginning. I had a vision that this feeling maybe has an end. I feel fine with the sun in my eyes, the wind in my hair. 
months in that environment while also being finally called a daughter for the first time in my life by a mother who apparently really wanted me to be her daughter. And when it was time for me to go, um, I 100% by the end of that six months. Um, oh, I want, I want to make sure I say this too. They, um, I, one of the more damaging things as far as my experience of being a woman there was that they didn't have a framework for, a for how I could possibly be a woman and not want children because for whatever, whatever reason I've known since I was 10 years old that I don't actually want, I don't want to have children. Um, and they, a part of, you know, their belief system is that that's what women are here for and that you can be here for other things too. They at least let women be pastors over there, which is cool, I guess. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, that's part of your job is to bear children, to have babies. And they couldn't understand the only way that they could possibly understand the reason why I would be a woman who wouldn't want to have children is that, um, that I would have had to have been sexually abused by someone, um, for that to be true for me. And I remember, um, at some point I remember I was laying on my bed in my flat there and I was curled up in the fetal position and sobbing because they had so fervently insisted to me that someone must have abused me. And I couldn't remember, I couldn't remember who it was or how it would have happened or anything like that. And so they were also under the impression as was I, that I must've repressed it so deeply that I couldn't get to that memory. And I was, I was sobbing on my bed because I was so frustrated that I, I couldn't get to that memory. And I wanted to know, I so deeply wanted to know what had happened to me that had screwed me up so badly. Um, and I couldn't, like, I couldn't understand how I couldn't get there. Now, the reality is, is that nothing happened to me. I wasn't sexually abused. Nobody sexually abused me, but they had manipulated me into the point where that's the only, like, I believed that I must have been because that's the only way that there would be space for a woman like me within their belief. Yeah. is I mean, real fucked up shit. Like, so by the, unfortunately, by the end of these, um, six months, I was like, I was sold. I was all in. I was like, cool, tight, let's do it. I'm staying here forever. And definitely super lost to myself, lost, you know, my entire personality to it, but thought this is my home. This is my family. This is it. And so when I left to come back to the States to apply for a visa. Um, I, I left half of everything I owned in my closet, in my flat there. I didn't even say goodbye to people. I didn't even say goodbye to, you know, any of my friends because I was like, I'll be back in like three months. Um, the plan was for me to come back to the States for about three months, um, to do some traveling and be in a couple friends' weddings. And then about six weeks before the end of those three months is when we would start the, the visa application process. And about two months into, my being in the States, I finally got a response to an email that I had sent a couple weeks before. Cause I was like, Hey, I'm ready. Like, let's start this thing. Um, they wrote me an email the day after my birthday, not very tactful. Um, that essentially just said in so many words, Hey, um, we miscalculated some finances and we can't bring you back. So maybe check with us in October and we'll see if we have the money by then. Cool. Bye. I mean, it was like they in one email, because remember what you have to weigh into this is the psychological manipulation of the fact that I had let them tell me for six months that my life had no meaning unless I was doing that work. Yeah. And then in one email, they told me, you're not allowed to come and do this work. I had nothing. I had no job. I had no place to live. 
I had, I was still living off of other people's money because the whole plan was that I was going to be back as a missionary again in a month. Um, I had only half of everything I've owned, ever owned in this world with me because the other half was still in my closet there. Um, and my family had essentially just said, Hey, um, yeah, you don't get to be one of us anymore, but like maybe in a few months you can come back. It was just so, and, and the, and the, the underlying message of what they said without saying was, you know, what they'd always said, which is just, you know, the sovereignty of God thing, which was, if this is what's happening, this must be what God had always wanted to have happen. So you need to be the one to figure out how to be obedient and find joy. We're not responsible for any of this. And so I, in, in like dog paddling to keep my head above water and to be obedient and find that joy so that God wouldn't be mad at me and God would leave me too. Um, I, I, pan- I mean, obviously I panicked. I didn't really know what to do, but I ended up living with a family that went to that church that I had been a part of here in Tennessee previously. And I moved in with them. Um, and everything in my life had a question mark over it. I, I now had a roof over my head, but that was the only thing I had. And my, um, I, di- I haven't mentioned any of this before, but, um, my, you know, years of struggles with, um, disordered eating and specifically with binge eating. I mean, they were at that. I just bottomed out during that period of time. And I was absolutely intentionally actively harming myself through, um, the way that I was eating. Um, and just, I, I wanted, I felt like there was this feeling that it was twofold. It was part of it was that, um, I think what was going on is I felt like I must've done something, um, to cause this to happen to me. So I needed to feel like punishment. So if I felt physically bad, then there was an element of feeling punished. Um, but it wasn't, but it was still a little bit removed from me because it was compulsive behavior. It wasn't me saying that I wasn't agreeing with God, um, which is really convoluted. But, um, and the other part of it was that, that feeling of being the wrong kind of woman came up again. And I was like, well, if I've made God mad, or if, you know, I did something to bring this upon myself, um, then it must have something to do with that previous problem, quote unquote problem that I had had my whole life, which was the inability to integrate my sexual identity into the rest of myself. And so I thought that must have something to do with it. And so part of that binge eating experience, um, was, and how that became just like a very compulsive habitual practice for me during that period of time. Um, and I just definitely wasn't taking care of myself was because I felt like if I had a body that I felt connected to or was proud of or loved or inhabited appropriately, um, if I had that, if I had that relationship with my physical body, then I would do dangerous, bad and sinful things with that body. And I needed to do everything that I possibly could to be as holy as possible. Um, and part of that being as holy as possible is making sure like I wasn't desirable to men. Um, so I needed to make myself feel like I couldn't be desirable. And the main way of doing that has nothing to do with a size or a number. It had everything to do with me, me not desiring my own self, um, and not feeling comfortable within my own skin. Um, hmm. so the, it's ironic cause the only place I felt comfortable was, was feeling uncomfortable with myself. And I lived like that for a few months. Um, until, um, I mean, I don't, I, you know, October came and went and I heard nothing. Um, 
I ended up, you know, moving out and getting a job and started paying rent and, you know, rooted back here in Nashville, but still kept in weird, weird touch with the leadership there. And they were still trying to manipulate me out of money. It was really weird. They kept coming to me and saying like, Hey, we actually, Oh, we miscalculated some of your bills. And then when I would like try and get my stuff back too, it was just kind of this like, well, we'll just see what happens. Like, we'll just see like, maybe, maybe the doors will open and you'll be able to come back. And it's like, no, I actually kind of want my clothes. Like you guys just like send those (laughs) back over. Um, so eventually, eventually a girl that was still there brought my suitcases back with me here. But then when the leadership there found out that she had done that, they got really upset and they were like, why did, why did she bring your stuff back? And when I would post on social media about my process of trying to grieve through, and I was always respectful in the way that I talked about them at the time. Um, and I was, you know, writing things about how I was grieving through the fact that like, Hey, life happens and it's unexpected and I miss them. They would contact me and tell me to take the post down because it made them look bad. And it was just, the whole thing was like, it, I just felt, and I was, I was being manipulated and there was no real relationship there the whole time. And, um, I, I functioned under that very, um, committed and, naive belief that they had the best intentions for me up until a point about, um, about, yeah, about another, you know, nine months seems to be a good period of time here, uh, about nine months after I'd come back and had just become more and more depressed and more and more dissociated. Um, and I remember reading a story online, um, of that an acquaintance, like friends of friends, had written about his time on leadership and on staff at IHOP in Kansas city. And I was sitting there reading that and it was the first time that I had any sort of objective perspective on what my experience in England had been because about 95% of what he was writing about was exactly what I had experienced. And I could validate it very freely because it was him and it wasn't me. And I, I'm definitely not kidding when I tell you that it, in that moment, in that instant, it was like a light switch went on and I immediately knew, I think I've probably verbally said out loud to myself that I was in a cult and it was like, I, I, I right away I woke up. Now, obviously there was nine months of, of turmoil and wrestling that led to that point that I was ready to wake up right away. But the moment I woke up to it, I was terrified. Um, and from that point over the next like month or two, every time I would try and go to my church that I'd been going to, I would have panic attacks and I would be in the building for all of maybe 90 seconds. And the moment that someone would say the name of God or Jesus, I would immediately start shaking, like shaking and getting really sweaty and my vision would get really blurred and I couldn't breathe. And it was just, it was a panic attack. And so I kept having to leave, um, about a minute and a half after I'd get to church. And after a couple of weeks in a row of trying to do that, I just realized I was like, oh, okay, why am I still trying to put myself into the situation in this environment? That's I'm feeling re-traumatized in. there's clearly something going on here. My body is not okay. I'm not okay. And I need to figure out why I'm not okay. I need to figure out what happened. So I, I have to, for the first time in my entire life, after 20 years, 20, you know, 20 years, about, about 20 years from that, from that point that I was sitting in the pastor's office and I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that this wasn't for me. It was the first time that I had actually given myself permission to leave because I had to take care of myself because my body was shutting down. It was absolutely shutting down. And 
Wow. I couldn't function. And so I was like, I got to go. Like, and I, I don't, and I, I didn't know how to explain it to anyone because I just figured out myself that I had been in a cult. And mind you, this place that was that cult environment was a church that was still very connected to the one I was going to at the time. So there wasn't really a whole lot of um, available permission for me to talk about that experience with people. And all I knew is that I had to stop going because I couldn't function. And so I stopped to give myself some space to figure out what was going on and to, to start to heal. Um, and after, after just a few weeks of not going, um, after giving myself the permission to leave, I realized that I had been waiting for 20 years to give myself the permission to leave. And it took trauma and it took, um, it took my body getting to a point that my mind and my spirit didn't really have access to at the time to like wave this giant red flag and say, you can't keep doing this to yourself. You cannot keep doing this to yourself. We have to get out. We have to, we have to basically the way I know to think about it now is my body was screaming at me saying, I miss you so much. We have to reintegrate. We can't live like this. And so I stopped. And, um, that was when my, you know, the terminology of my religious deconstruction started and it was super painful and I lost a lot of people. My entire network of friends and relationships here in Nashville, um, disintegrated from that point. Um, and I had to start over. I had to, as a, as a human individual in my late twenties, I literally had to learn for the first time in my life, how to make friends. I would start going to events and social gatherings, knowing nobody, but just knowing I needed to be around human beings. And I would force my way through all the fucking small talk for, you know, seven or eight months until the point where you would have kind of a spark of a moment with someone you're going beyond the small talk and you're connecting over something. And that incessant, just like, I have to make friends and I don't know how my friends have always been given to me by church. And I have to like find hobbies. I literally don't even know what I like. I don't, I don't know what I love. I don't even know what I'm interested in. I don't even know my favorite color. I literally didn't know my favorite color. Like I have to find something. I have to find things that are mine or I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And those relationships that I fought for and kept showing up for are the closest people in my life now. And the people that I know I will have forever. Um, that process of asking myself those questions of what are you interested in? What do you want to do is, is actually what led me to, um, the program that I got my integrative health coach certification from, um, IIN that place definitely brought me back to life. Um, and, and in a way that I desperately needed at that point in time. And that was the beginning of, of, of everything else. Really. Um, I also got into a 12 step program for food addiction because I knew that that was, that compulsion was a symptom of a deeper problem, but it was also a compulsion I needed to take care of and, and, and spend some time with, um, because it runs in my family in a big way. And so I just, I had, I, I, it was, it really was, I either, found myself in a position where I was like, I'm, I'm either not going to live like this anymore. I'm not going to live anymore. And that language scared me enough that I had to figure out a different way. And for me, that different way was finally giving myself the permission to get out of a religious environment for the first time in my life and just begin to rebuild my relationship with myself and with my intuition and to trust myself and to know myself well. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, that's an amazing story. And I'm glad that you're in a place where you feel whole or you feel like you're approaching wholeness. And I, I'm, I mean, that's the, the fact that your, your own body was, you know, sending you these sorts of signals and, and that I'm, yeah, 
Yeah. I'm I'm sort of absorbing um I'm absorbing everything you've shared. So sure. a lot of, a lot of times I get uh <laughs> a little stuttery uh oh, okay. after after I after I hear someone's story like yours. Um mm-hmm. just because of the the weight of it sort of just it's there. <laughs> it's right there, you know. Yeah. Um <laughs> sorry. I'm having trouble with this segue. Um mm-hmm. so with your uh, with, with what you've learned through your integrated health program and everything else, um, and just the what you what you've said most recently about really just sort of discovering both social interaction as well as what you think about things sort of on your own. You felt like previously you didn't really have. Um, I don't know. Did you feel like you didn't have permission to to like have to have those sorts of things, like a favorite color, or like, or that you just didn't? It just wasn't uh, something that was um, um, important to you. The way you described that, it seemed like like it was actually like you were just, you were just been given the sorts of things you were supposed to believe and think and and all of that through so much of your life that you were just now discovering it for yourself for the first time. Is that fair or am I, am I misreading that? Um, that is correct. And also I think that it goes a layer deeper than that too, into the realm of, um, like it might sound silly that I say something like I didn't even have a favorite color, um, or I didn't know what my hobbies were. Um, but what, what's actually going on there with that is that I, didn't have any framework for the experience of pleasure um, because everything was duty and everything was sacrificed. And then also on top of that, um, pleasure was dangerous because it, it signaled um, desire or it spoke to desire and it spoke to want and it spoke to, you know, being raised evangelical, the, the word flesh is, synonymous with sin and with what is evil. Mm. Um, and so desires of the flesh, like there's, there's, there's something that's happening psychologically with these words that we're using. And so there is, um, there is a lack of access into certain areas of your life. And I mean, I've heard from so many women now that, that, you know, like I said, like these things might sound silly, but that is, this is symptomatic. Yeah. They don't sound silly to me. And, you know, uh, it's, it's definitely, I, I don't, you're saying that they sound silly. Right. I hear myself with them sometimes and I'm like, it sounds, but it's, it sounds silly, but it's there. It's real. Yeah. And it really is. It's the inability. It's the, it's the lack of permission and what brings you pleasure. And I think that that is, I have a lot of, I have a lot of theories on that within the realm of, um, you know, the suppression of the feminine within patriarchal religious, um, the patriarchal religious, you know, Christian narrative, um, which, which also, you know, the, the feminine energy, um, is kind of the keeper of the erotic spirit. And so er, the eroticism is in the erotic spirit is essentially, um, what your life force is, what brings you life, what, what makes you feel alive. And that's what I'm talking about when I say like, I didn't even know what I was interested in. Um, I didn't know what made me feel alive because all I knew is what was required of me and what would make a deity happy apparently. Um, and so there, so yeah, I mean, what you're saying is correct. Um, and then also there is something happening on a much deeper subconscious level about how we are taught to, and indoctrinated into being afraid of our own desires 
Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's so pervasive in, um, and just in, in American evangelical culture, like pleasure is mm-hmm. very, very strictly defined. Um, yes. I mean, every, everything's really very strictly defined, but the sorts of things that you should feel good about are supposed to be like, you know, being in chapel or like yeah. listening yeah. to a great newsboys song or, right. you know, like, <laughs> whatever, like, like it's it's always very specific. Um, it's very narrow, and it's very um, it has to belong. So, like exactly what you're saying is um, the the only permission for pleasure is that you're allowed to find it when you're listening to a newsboy song. But the idea of finding pleasure while just listening to music, just the ability to engage with music itself and recognize music for the way that flows through you and the way it makes you feel and what that, what it means to engage with music as a human. How does it speak to humanity? How does it make us feel more human? Um, just music in general. Um, there is this, there's a duality that exists there within evangelicalism that says, well, only if it's Christian music, if it's not Christian music, then, I mean, it li- and sometimes they'll even be as clear in the way that they say it is like, if it's not, if it's secular music, if it's not Christian music, then it's not of God. Rather, and that's insane. Rather than this idea of like music is of the divine. It's part of engaging and being connected to the divine or the universe or God. Like it just is. But there's this, they have to make it into a team sport where newsboys is allowed to bring you joy. But Ace of Base. <laughs> Hell no. No, Which, not even my first cassette tape and my mother took it away. Yeah. Not no. even Chance the Rapper. You know, no. he wouldn't be allowed. And he he there's literally a song that's just how great is our God on this album. Which I discovered um, accidentally, and it was actually a little bit triggering, which was weird. So, but that's just me. For other yeah, people, no, right. I, I, I get but it. But I exactly what you mean. Like, it's just the fact that he doesn't identify that the artists that don't straightforward, um, out in the open, identify as Christian artists. There's something about that to where it's like, okay, well, you're not allowed to find pleasure, beauty, or joy in those things. And that's, that's crazy. That's super sad. It's very, and it's, and again, I'll, I don't mince words. That's inhumane. That's inhumane to indoctrinate people, um, to believe that something like that should be true. So where your, where your sort of work is now is very much, uh, counter counteractive to that as far as Mm -hmm. the words like um indoctrination and that sort of thing you're Mm -hmm. seeking to integrate people into a different sort of um understanding about to them to their and their bodies and and that sort of thing and that uh i'm i'm borrowing that i'm not trying to put words in your mouth i'm actually thinking of the ways that you, uh, you've actually described it on the life after podcast as well as, um, before we started recording. Um, but as far as like this and in the integrated health and, and how that, um, plays into, to what you're studying and, and what you're, what you're interested in and, and who your, uh, who your clients are now, um, mm-hmm. given that you have background, you have this deeply personal experience of, of, feeling literally like two people and then yeah. um now you're you've gone through this process of 
this integrated process within your own self and then guiding other people in, into that. How, um, how does that, what does that look like? Um, and how, how do you, how do you, um, engage with like the previous religious, like, um, previous religious experiences? Like, how do you, how do you frame those things when through this integrative lens? Mm, That's a good question. Um, as far as how, for the first part of that question, as far as how I, um, relate to the people that I work with now. And as far as how kind of my, my own personal journey informs the work that I do. Um, one of the things that I hold very sacred in, um, my work with my clients is that any answer that you're looking for can't come from anywhere outside of you. Um, one of the things that I make sure that I reiterate over and over to people when I'm working with them is that my job isn't to provide answers. It's to provide a space. It's to create space. Um, I send everyone that I work with when we enter into a contract with one another, I send them what took me, I mean, over a year to, um, assimilate and put together this form, um, for my clients that, you know, all of my coaching information about who I am and who do I serve and what do I do? What's, what's my methodology? What do I believe? Um, and then some practicalities of the way the contract breaks down too. But, um, for, I have these seven points, um, that we're always working off of. And one of those is that, um, well, I can actually just kind of tell them to you. Um, and this is what I, this is what I super, this is what was so healing to me. And this is the space that I've desired to create for other people that I believe will be healing to them, whether it's physically healing, spiritually healing, emotionally healing, mentally healing, or on, you know, all levels. It's that your body actually has a language and has a voice and, um, you could call it your intuition. You could just call it the language of your body, which I generally tend to do that. Um, and that that language his or her, or, you know, their language is your mother tongue. Um, that's your most innate, most fluent language. Um, we see that a lot with, with children. They super, they're, they're very intuitive and they definitely trust their gut and they definitely know what they want. And they definitely tell you that they know what they want. Um, they're very, they're hyper aware of, of the truth that exists inside of their own bodies, as far as their drives and their desires and what makes them come alive. Um, they may not have the verbal language to explain it to you that way, but they're clear. Um, so, and I also believe that trauma is, trauma is responsible for breaking down that communication with your body. Now, specifically within the realm of, um, people that I tend to work with now are the people that find me in a lot of cases to reach out and then reach out to me to work with me. Um, they don't know that what they've experienced is trauma. Cause I didn't either. Um, I didn't know, uh, that religious trauma syndrome was a thing. I didn't know it was real. Um, but that experience within fundamentalism is traumatizing because it it does exactly what I just explained that it does, which it kind of splits you down the middle and creates you into two different people that are constantly at war with one another. And in some 
circles of Christianity, that war is seen as holy. That war is seen as a good thing. That war of being in constant battle with yourself is seen as if you are actually, you're doing it. You're doing the thing because you're fighting against your impulses and your flesh. Right. Um, and so it kind of, the, the concepts, the rest of the kind of the pillars grow from there. And it's basically this idea that, um, you know, sickness, illness, disease, whether again, whether it's spiritual, physical, mental, or emotional, um, are born out of those frustrated attempts for your body and, and your, you know, you to communicate back with your body. So you be integrated for those two halves of yourself to heal. Um, and basically the work that I do with my clients is, I mean, I, when I talk to them in the initial consultation that we have, and it's basically just them telling me about their experience and their story, even if they don't say it quite as definitively as I feel like there are two parts of me, there's always some language about that experience of dissociation, about how there's some part of themselves that they don't feel like they have access to, um, or that they don't feel like they have permission to know or to, uh, um, become acquainted with or to speak the same language as. And the work that I do is the work that I had to learn how to do to yourself with myself when I gave myself that belief um, was that I know that this thing is in me that I've always known is true. Uh, there, and I, I have to believe that there's other things in me that I, I know are true, like maybe what my favorite color is or, you know, the things that I enjoy and, um, you know, my hobbies are, I don't know, like those, whatever makes me feel and come alive. I know that they must be in there. Um, and so she knows, like my body knows, she knows the best things for me. I, I, I believe now definitely. And this, my life up to this point, these last few years up to this point has been this battle to let myself believe that I can trust her. Absolutely. I can trust her. And that's what I find to be the guiding theme of these conversations I'm having with my clients is that they are so desperate to know what it feels like to trust themselves. They're so desperate to know what it feels like to fully inhabit their own bodies. And for some of them, they've actually developed, um, chronic illness out of years of, um, in my, in my view, and I will, some of my work from this point on will be, uh, my thesis next year will actually be about, um, attempting to, and it'll be beyond this thesis too. I'll, it'll be work that I'll do for a long time, but I'm going to be attempting to prove the link between religious and cultural sexual suppression or, you know, just fundamentalist type of belief and, um, autoimmune disease in hmm. women because of the way that it, it, what we know about the nature of autoimmune disease is that your, it's one part of your body attacking another part of your body. And they also, they, modern medical science doesn't really have an answer beyond that as far as what happens or how it happened or, you know, they don't really have any way to classify certain diseases other than the fact that, well, your immune system is attacking this part of you and that's it. And they don't really have a solution either. Um, but the way that I hear that with the way I was raised through the lens of the way I was raised is when you tell me that that one part of the body is attacking itself, what you mean is that somewhere in there, one, your body received a message that it is its own enemy. And I remember being the ra raised the way that I was raised, constantly hearing that I was my own enemy because I felt like those two different people. Um, and especially for women who were raised inside of purity culture, I mean, we're all, we're constantly told that, that, you know, we are, we are, it was that feeling of basically, I can't have a body I'm proud of or else I would do dangerous things with it. We are our own enemy. And we are also the enemy of, of, 
you know, these men who are trying to be holy because heaven forbid, they look at us when we're wearing spaghetti straps and we cause them to stumble. And so it's this, you're hyper vigilant and you're hyper worried and you're just constantly dissociating from yourself. And I believe that that incubates disease. Um, and so I do have some clients that I'm working through that have specific autoimmune diseases, um, that have a background in being raised within purity culture, um, that we're going through and, rewriting some of their, you know, rewriting some things. I, I practice a form of narrative medicine with my clients as well. So it's, you're, it's, it's very, um, it's story heavy. It's writing heavy, um, because illness is a story and healing is a story. And those two things have to match up. And I do want to point out as well that the work that I do with my clients, um, they also, as far as the ones who have significant physical conditions, they also have a doctor, a medical doctor that they're working with as well. Um, because that's not a certification I have yet. I'm probably going to be going that route with further schooling. Um, and then the client that I have that are, are working with significant mental and emotional, um, illness and conditions and disease also have therapists that mm, they're mm -hmm. working with as well. Um, and I have a therapist as well. So I'm definitely no, and this is where the whole integrative thing comes in because no part of me believes that I am a practitioner or a, or a healer in any measure that has all the answers for anyone. I know that this, the, the scope or yeah, what, what I bring to the table is, um, complementary to the other therapeutic methods. And I think I bring a specific, um, a very specific focus that those other areas might not be zeroing in on because they're intended to zero in on other areas, mm. but this mm -hmm. is intended to integrate with other areas of healing, it's not intended to stand alone. So that's something I want to make like super clear because I'm not a doctor and I'm not, you know, a certified, you know, counselor or therapist. I have mm -hmm. specific certifications and I'm in school right now. Um, but I do deeply believe in these things that I have, you know, studied so far and some of the results that I've seen so far with other people and with myself um, and in some of the studies that I've read with people who practice narrative medicine and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that was an answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, <Not sure. laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. That was great. Well, I'm really thankful that that um, we were able to to talk and to really explore so much of your story. And I mean, I still feel like um, there's so much yet that we that we could have talked about. But of everything that we did and everything that you shared, I'm very thankful that you that um, that we were able to <laughs> to get together and and hear a little bit about your your experiences. I'm, I'm very glad that you're on the other side of the trauma. I'm sure that there's healing takes, you know, healing is a process and everything, but I'm very glad to have been able to talk to you a little bit about every, every step of this, as well as, um, just learn a little bit more about, about the healing as well, because that is definitely one part of, one part of this, this entire endeavor of this show really is, is hearing from other people and, and letting other people know the, the potentials of healing as well, as well as just commiserating. <laughs> so, Oh, that's a really good way to put that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's great. Um, so thank you again. And, uh, where can people find you online? Where can they learn more about your practice and, and just other things about your writing and anything else you might want to share or plug? Yeah. So, um, I exist on all social media outlets, 
Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram um, under the same handle, and it's Jamie Lee Finch. Um, on Facebook, I have just a private, regular personal page, and then I also have a page for my writing um, that you can find just by searching Jamie Lee Finch as well. Um, so that one's a you know a page that you like and not like a person that you friend, but you're welcome to do both. That's fine. Um, but that page is where I post my poetry. Um, it goes directly to that page. Or if you follow me on Instagram, it's at Jamie Lee Finch, and that is a um, it's less of a personal Instagram and more of a, it's where all my poetry goes to. Um, and then, I mean, if you really want an unfiltered version of my brain, follow me on Twitter. Like that's the <laughs> best. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just wanted to that I, um, since, you know, the last podcast that I recorded, I've had a number of people reach out for consultations. Um, and you can reach out to me on any of those mediums, whether you want to send me a Facebook message or Twitter direct message or on Instagram and on Instagram, there is a a link on that profile. You can click to email me, um, as well, if that's easiest for people. And, um, yeah, I do. I, this is work that I do. Um, and I also, at the beginning of, you know, entering into that work with people, I always do free consultations and would love to talk to anyone who has, who any of what I've said has resonated with, or they're curious and want to know more, maybe want to explore some areas of what has happened to them or what is happening to them. Or quite literally, if you just feel like you're going crazy and nobody knows what you've been through and you just want to hear someone on the other end of the phone say me too, um, (laughs) you can do that. I can do that. We can do that. So, um, I believe that, um, storytelling is healing. I believe that it, that sharing our stories with one another is the beginning of healing, um, in every other area of our lives and in our bodies and in our minds and in our spirits. So if I can provide, make, create that space, provide that space to anyone to begin that process, it's a total honor to do so. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Great. Great. Thanks again, Jamie, so much for, for sharing your story and for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Blake. I appreciate it.